0: Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. There's a saying, and I'm not sure of its origins, but I credit my Uncle Moses, the person from whom I heard it, that goes Southern men spend the first 25 years of their lives trying to escape the places of their birth, and the next 25 trying to return. I can't speak for all Southerners, but I can say that there's a bit of truth to that in regards to my own experience. For nearly my entire life, I have lived in the town of Noonan, Georgia. There's about a six-year gap in which I lived in Atlanta, and at the time, I figured I'd most likely stay in that area. But when my wife and I began thinking about buying a house and starting a family, we began to consider Noonan as a possibility, though I did have some reservations. Like most people, I'm sure, I had mixed feelings about my hometown, and a part of me had not necessarily seen myself ever moving back. I mean, I loved Noonan, and for the most part, I did like growing up there, though it did sometimes feel like a bit of an antagonistic relationship. I remember this one time when I was 15, and I was walking home from the movie theater with some friends. When a truck of adults pulled up next to us to inform my friend Brian, who was wearing a Charlie Brown t-shirt, that his shirt was the dumbest fucking shirt they'd ever seen and they looked stupid as hell in it before speeding off down the road. Now it would be unfair to say that this was totally indicative of my time growing up in Noonan, but the memories of similar experiences were still lingering in my early 20s though regardless of whatever ill feelings I might still have had about the place, Noonan remained even during my time away, a very comfortable and familiar place in my mind, like a nicely broken-in couch. I'd always put a lot of stock in comfort and familiarity, so in the end, we made the decision to leave Atlanta. The prospects of becoming homeowners and it not taking half an hour to go a couple miles down the road were just too enticing. About a month or so after moving back to Noonan, I found an anonymous note on the windshield of my recently purchased station wagon, which still had its temporary tags, stating that I should pay taxes like everyone else, and if I didn't go to the tag office soon, he or she would report me. As I stood outside my newly purchased home, annoyed and angry, I began to worry that I had possibly made a mistake moving back. I felt as if I had been tricked and wondered how Noonan had been able to lure me back. Were there more incidents like this to come? Was it too late for me? I remember having a number of thoughts like this during the time, frequently wondering if maybe we should move. I do remember thinking about North Carolina a lot during this period we have been taking numerous trips up there to visit my wife's Pawpaw, who lived in the town of Salisbury, and we really fell in love with that town, and really the whole state. And of course, it didn't hurt that a lot of great records came out of that place. One record in particular, Bright in the Corners by Pavement, was regularly on my mind. Now, I did have a Bright in the Corners era bumper sticker on my car at the time, so I was constantly reminded of this album's existence. And in thinking about this album frequently, as well as North Carolina, my mind would often turn to the legendary producer and native North Carolinian, Mitch Easter. I had long been an admirer of Easter's due to his true DIY spirit and the fact that as a Southerner, he was able to make his vital contributions to the culture, all the while staying in the South. In his hometown, no less. He didn't escape to a bigger city, but stayed home and made his own world on his own terms. This fact was a source of comfort and inspiration to me as I spent some of those early days after moving back to Noonan, wondering why the hell I returned. Now, I'm not completely sure of when I first became aware of Easter. It could very well have been through his involvement with the first pavement record I fell in love with, or in being an Athens, Georgia obsessive. it could have definitely been through his work on REM's earliest recordings. But I also just think if you're from the South and you have some sort of interest in recording or the history of college radio and independent music, Mitch Easter is just kind of like common knowledge. It was natural that, because of my interest, I would eventually come to know his work and really fall in love with his band Let's Active and their wonderful 1984 debut record, Cypress. Now, I'm not completely sure of when I first heard Cypress, but like I said, in my world, Mitch Easter is just like common knowledge. It really would only be a matter of time before an album like this found its way to me. And when it did, I put it on while in the comfort of my home in Noonan, Georgia, and I listened this is the story of that record.
1: It goes, this will all come back to haunt me. You keep up for time spent hanging out.
2: Hi, this is Mitch Easter and I'm uh, a musician and recording person. and we're going to be talking about a record that my 80s band Let's Active made that's called Cypress. started playing when I was 12, and then I also really loved recorded music, so by the time I was in college trying to figure out how I could not actually ever get a job, I thought I should really try to work those two things that I really loved, so I did start this little recording studio called Drive-In Studio, and that was sort of my claim to fame because I got to record some kind of happening bands in the early 80s that kind of put me on the map, but I'd been playing for a while before that. But this record Cypress was the second record that Let's Active got to put out for IRS records.
0: Born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Mitch Easter's exposure to music happens at an early age, which eventually leads to an interest in learning to play the guitar.
2: My parents were these people that had the radio on all the time and they were of this generation where they could have gone in either direction with respect to the rock, you know? Like, they had friends that would say stuff like, that Elvis Presley can't carry a tune, you know, and stuff like that, whereas my parents liked Elvis and listened to that kind of music. I was fortunate to get to grow up with the, you know, the rock stations on, which really meant top 40 back then which was still kind of a variety but you know the the thing that one's grandparents would listen to would be you know what was called easy listening and they didn't listen to that just remember hearing the radio a lot and my dad as a kid had played banjo with his brother who played fiddle and they had like a little duo that played at like theaters around town when they were children but he had stopped playing he really didn't play anymore but he was one of those guys that could pick up something and kind of plunk out a tune you know so I always thought that's cool but i didn't really start playing for a long time i was in the school band and i was really bad i played trumpet and then uh later i had braces and i i got even worse you know so the band director suggested to my parents that i play the um the, the baritone horn or the euphonium you know it has a slightly bigger mouthpiece and i really liked that thing you know it was kind of a it was a nice instrument but by then i think i had been completely polluted by taking my first guitar lessons that was the road to ruin that i was on you know and i just so so bands sort of faded away and rock bands sort of took over and that was when i was 12 but that was a great year to, to start playing it was 67 you know so like the music scene was pretty solid and i took lessons at first which was well actually this friend of mine down the road um had started playing guitar before me and he could you know he could play and he showed me a couple of things and I could actually do it and I couldn't believe it and, and the thing that he showed me was the intro riff to secret agent by Johnny Rivers which is one hell of a riff right and I could do it you know and it's like all right so over the next few months I really decided to go for it and I was old enough you know to have some willpower you know I knew that like I don't want to mess this up I'm going to really try. I'm going to practice, you know, and all this. And I did, you know, which is great. I think, you know, a couple of years earlier, I might have been too much of a child, you know. But by then, I kind of had this sense of like, okay, get serious. And then I had a great guitar teacher who, you know, looking back at it, I think he was probably like a, you know, college sophomore or something that was home for the summer, But he was this really cool-looking kid. My memory is that he looked like Scott Walker, you know, in the Walker Brothers. He had this great blonde hair, and he was kind of cool and wore, like, sunglasses. But the thing about him that was so cool was that he understood that I was still, like, a child, you know. And he didn't try to, like, lay music theory on me or scales or anything like that. I think he understood that kids don't have the attention span for that stuff, and I sure didn't. So when I would say, I want to learn this monkey song, you know, he'd show me the chords to it, and it made me feel like I could play, you know, it was fantastic. And then I had another year or so of guitar lessons with a guy who was a little more highfalut. But by then, I was really in the, like, rock band scene around here of other kids, and you just sort of really learn by doing. The whole country was probably bristling with basement rock bands, but this area seemed particularly good. I was just surrounded by all these people that were good, you know, that I got to play with. Music just came at you from every direction. I was that age, and it was, it seemed very exciting. I mean, it was a really attractive door into the adult world. In fact, I can even kind of remember feeling fortunate that, um, you know, an example of an adult could be, you know, a member of the Rolling Stones. You know, but whereas, you know, a generation back, the adult role model would just be somebody who was the foreman at a factory, which is nothing wrong with that. But, you know, not as much my cup of tea as these guys wearing funny clothes were.
0: It is through playing in bands as a teenager that Easter would begin to experiment with songwriting and home recording.
2: Well, I I was in this band called Sacred Irony, and they were a pretty good band. And all I was was the guitar player in the band, but I was influential in that. I made the breakthrough suggestion that we should write songs. All bands back then just did covers because that's what you did, you know, and you go play at the dance or whatever and people want to hear songs they know and that's never going to change, sort of. But um, in the South, I think there was not enough music, like showbiz infrastructure for people to really understand how it worked. Like, the chances of you knowing somebody who had actually made a record was pretty slim, you know. So it was really weird. It just was like in nobody's consciousness to even do that. And my line was simply that, well, you know we buy records of people that have their own music. They're not, you know, we don't buy 10 bands' records that are all covering the Beatles, you know. We buy the Beatles doing the Beatles and whatever, you know. So anyway, I talked the rest of them into the idea that we should start writing songs, and there were a couple of guys in the band who were actually turned out to be good songwriters, and and I tried to do it too. So I had some songs, which really just kind of meant a chord progression, you know, and then the singer would kind of, like, fill it out from there. So that was when I was about... The 14 or 15, I guess, that was my initial foray. But anyway, after that, I kind of realized I didn't really know how to write songs. And then uh, I'd say the next step of really trying to work on it was probably about 72, or I think it was 72. Uh, TEAC, the Japanese audio manufacturer, came out with these tape machines that had four tracks, and you they had what was called sync mode, which allowed you to do overdubs, which is like what you do in the studio when you're not recording live. And that was an amazing breakthrough to be able to buy a machine that, could, that could do that. You know, we would always recorded ourselves on tape recorders, but it had to just be a live performance. And, and by then, I have sort of grasped the idea that, like, records are sort of constructed, you know, um, to some extent. And so with this tape machine, which actually Chris Stamey, my friend, bought the machine— and he brought it over to my house and it's lived down in my basement because I had a good one of those rock band basements. And we started recording on that thing and putting songs together, you know, in a sort of W way. And that happened also because the other two guys in the band were not as interested in it as us, and they sort of just faded away, you know, and Chris and I really got into it. So, you know, that was, like, fantastic because not only do we sort of have to write songs to use this fun machine, but we also had to... um I mean, I guess somebody else might have just used the machine to cover songs they love, but maybe because neither Chris nor I could really sing, we thought we could make up stuff that we could sort of sing, you know? I mean, our own stuff was something that we defined, right? So for whatever reason, we we both started writing songs, and we both sort of got better at it, you know? And, And I'm still speaking in very relative terms. I mean, the world does not need to hear what we did down there. But for me, it was incredibly helpful, and I think it was to him, too, After graduating from high school, Easter
0: attends the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, all the while remaining focused on an eventual career in music.
2: You know, my dad was like, he had that classic story of being able to go to college on the GI Bill, you know, and he was like the first person in his family to have higher education like that, and he had the classic thing of, like, his dad discouraging him from doing that. Like, why would you want to waste your time doing that? You can start working at the mill tomorrow, you know, kind of thing, and he really shot beyond all that, you know, and he did well, you know. He had a good career and everything as a result of going to college, and so, you know, my parents loved it, and they loved the environment at Chapel Hill, you know, in the 50s, uh, the The right-wingers and raleigh called it red hill you know because all those communists over there and stuff and they thought that was like hilarious and stuff and they you know they the whole college experience was really cool to them you know it's funny because my parents were locals but they they had a certain kind of coolness about them that was sort of bigger you know and i really appreciate that about them now i looking back at it i realize how they were kind of different and i have no idea why anyway they really, really wanted me to go to college and they really, really wanted me to love it and everything. And my problem was that I didn't exactly, you know, I kind of, I just kind of went, you know, and I did okay. But all I was thinking about was recording, you know, (laughs) I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to make records, you know. And so, um, you know, in the background of um, being in school, I, you know, I, I kept having bands and we kept recording and stuff. And then. Towards the end of college I started formulating this idea for this little studio I was gonna start, which is what I did. So I'm really glad I went to college. I mean, you know, the experience of just being there is massive even if you don't even know what it what you were doing at the time. It it does something good for you,
0: you know. In nineteen eighty, Easter sets up a recording studio inside the garage of his parents' house in Winston, Salem, dubbing it Drive In Studio. The facility would go on to host a number of notable sessions including those by
2: R.E.M., Game Theory, and Pylon. Graduated from college with the idea of doing the studio, and then I looked around the triangle for a place to rent to do it in, and even back then, um, it was more expensive than other parts of the state, you know, and I didn't really have any money, so I, I just didn't seem like I could quite pull it off. And so, then, so we just moved up to Winston-Salem, where everything was cheaper, and I found spaces to rent and stuff, but by then I was starting to have this creeping feeling of, like, you need to not do this because your studio will fail, you know, there's just not enough going on. Um, Even though by then it was 78, uh, you know, the word hadn't really reached everywhere in the hinterland, you know, and I just, you know, I wanted to be realistic about recording. I knew that I wasn't going to immediately get to record, you know, David Bowie, but I did aspire to doing music, you know, and a lot of the recording studio business back then was doing all kinds of stuff like voiceovers and ads, you know, which... It's probably kind of fun, but it's not what I wanted to do. So then I moved to New York, and I was going to do the studio up there, and then I I just kept backing out of everything. Then I decided not to, because it's like, oh, okay, New York is great, but everything's super expensive, so if I do this, I have to really, really commit myself, and it's like that I'll never play in a band again, and I don't want to do that either. So, So then I came back down here, not exactly with my tail between my legs, but enough to where I thought, okay, I've got to really make a go of this, and, and it worked, you know, and I think it's just because the timing was better, because by then it was 1980, and in 1980, the college radio stations were really springing, you know, a lot of colleges had stations that the kids didn't really care about, and then all of a sudden they did, you know, and a lot of those stations played this new wave stuff and punk records and all that, and everything feeds into everything else you know so with that you had the punk clubs and the you know new wave night on tuesday and this whole new crop of bands and everything and there was that real you know make make your 7-inch single mentality about about things then you know that everybody was inspired by that punk business scene of making kind of inexpensive records you know and and it did great and that was our clientele from the beginning and it was fantastic because it was exactly the right thing for me to be able to do. You know, if if I had been jumping into this in 1976, you know, the expectation would be to make it sound like a Billy Joel record or something, you know, which I did not have the knowledge or equipment or the interest in doing, you know. So it really it was the timing really helped a lot and North Carolina was was good all of a sudden, you know. We had um a very influential woman Named Dee Dee Thornton that was playing the, the the new sounds on the Wake Forest radio station, and then she can t- continued to push that on into like commercial stations around here that would give her shows to play that stuff. So you know all the stuff in the background really made my thing viable with the studio. The house that it was in was not the house I ever lived in. It was um, after I some, sometime when I was in college they. Well, my dad worked for Western Electric, which was part of AT&T, and they were really big on transferring their people. He was always getting transferred to New York for about two years, and they'd send him back here. And that happened repeatedly, and then he was sent to Chicago, and and um, the last place he worked was in the Netherlands, you know. So at some point in there, they sold the house that I grew up in. And then when he was getting closer to when he could imagine retiring, he, he bought this house that the studio was in and it was a really cool place. It was like this sort of ultimate ranch house of like 1949 or something like that. It was really long. You know, the garage was at one end, and bedrooms were at the other end, and they were like, you know, 100 feet apart. And this house had been built in a kind of homemade way. It was was actually made out of concrete blocks and then bricked over, so it was just like a fortress. And it so happened that you could make a lot of racket in that garage, and it kind of didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was weird. It's And my parents thought that the whole band thing was cool anyway, but it might not have worked if it was impossible for them to watch TV when the bands were in there. But it just didn't even you couldn't even tell the bands were in there. This house was kind of amazing just by chance. So, you know, I think they just thought it was cool. They were really nice to me and they just thought, well, he wants to do this and you can make a living doing that. Sure. Absolutely. Go for it. And when I finally moved out of there, um, you know, they were sad to see it go because I think, you know, they they just like meeting the meeting the stars, you know. It is around the same
0: time in which Easter is starting drive-in that he would begin playing music with bassist Faye Hunter, eventually bringing in drummer Sarah Romweber to form the band Let's Active.
2: Well, she was my girlfriend from when I was a teenager, and we were sort of set up by my friends in the the little rock bands. And you know how it is like at a school, the kids stand around in a place before the bell rings or whatever, and people clump up in, according to their interests, you know. And there was this area where these people that talked about records and music and stuff hung out. And she was one of them. And I didn't know her um, because she was a grade ahead of me. So it was like impossible, you know, to know anybody from, you know, the grade ahead of you. But these guys at some point declared that she and I should get together and kind of introduced us. And, And we did. We were together for years. And she was a you know, really great person and really artistic, really talented. Like, she could really draw, really paint and stuff. She could sort of do any art thing that she wanted to do, you know. And uh, a a few years into the era of this kind of music, she had just decided to buy a bass from this friend of ours and start playing it. And she was, like, instantly able to play, you know. She just... Like, it took me a while to be able to play guitar, but it didn't take her any time to be able to play bass, and she just had a lot of natural ability, you know? So when I came back from New York, it was kind of like, this is my last gasp to get a band going, because I'm really old now, you know, I was like 25, you know, and I thought, that's embarrassing, you know, I've really got to get this band going. It's like, well, you can play bass, and I can play guitar, all we need's a drummer, you know, three O's are great. That was it. And it was strange for me, because I had always played with these, you know, it was kind of an evolving batch of dudes that I would be in bands with, like, the guys that were in the DBs, I'd been in bands with most of them. And a lot of these people around here were basically, you know, otherwise engaged at this point in my life. So we just formed this band that was, for me, a totally new thing, like out of the blue, you know, because I'd never played in a band with Faye at all. And Sarah, the drummer, was somebody that I didn't didn't even know, you know. that. But again, a little bit of a setup. You know, I had two different people tell me, that there's this girl in Chapel Hill you got to meet she ought to be in your drummer and I'm like oh really you know so <laughs> that was kind of a cool thing too that just happened with the help of other people it was just kind of strange she was 17 uh, um and you know Faye and I were ancient you know she, I was 9 years older than her but you know it it just it really did work well um and she was perfect she was absolutely perfect for our band so i mean it was very fortunate and, and it was cool for me because it was a whole new universe for the way it felt, and by then, you know, the deal was like, okay, this is my band, I'm going to write songs, you know, because they they didn't write songs at that point, and I I did, so there was more on me to pull off, um, and I felt like, sure, let's go for it. During the same year in which Easter
0: forms less active, he would also begin his association with the Athens-based band R.E.M., producing their debut single, Radio Free Europe, in the spring of 1981. After co-producing with the band their follow-up EP, 1982's Chronic Town, Easter brings in musician Don Dixon to assist with the production of the band's debut full length, beginning what would turn out to be a long and fruitful partnership.
2: He was in this band called Arrogance that was um, around for a long time, and they had sort of different iterations, but the very beginning band was this sort of heavy band. And I guess the guy that sort of formed it was this guy from Winston-Salem named Mike Greer, who was a super legendary guy around here. His band back then was called Captain Speed. Actually, they were called Captain Speed and the Fungi Electric Mothers. And they were very impressive, kind of psychedelic, scary rock band, you know, and they were enough older than, like, I think maybe he was like the youngest guy in the band. So he was like you know, three grades ahead of me or something like that. So he was like a total adult, you know. Anyway, he had that band, and Don Dixon was in that band, and our band, Sacred Irony, played with him a couple of times, and I remember being so impressed because they were a really good band, and Don and Robert Kirkland, the uh, other guitar player, were just these awesome singers, you know, and so they could really play and they could really sing, and they were doing this kind of heavy, sort of like Procol Harem-type songwriting, but heavier sounds, you know, like really very sort of English. They were cool. So I was aware of him from that. And then somewhere in there, he met um, Phyllis, who was his first wife, who was from Weston salem So I think he was up here a lot to to see her when they were first kind of getting together. And I think Phyllis used to go out with Corky McMillan, the bass player in our band. But we knew of her because she was like a rock chick in town, you know, who had like great mini skirts, you know, and was just cool. So um, there were all these connections. And Finally, you know, we kept playing shows with him. And I just eventually, I guess, talked to him. I, I can't really remember. But when I was in college, he had already moved to Chapel Hill. And I started encountering him in like audio situations. He had this sort of like little garage studio Uh, Set up, and I had played on a couple of sessions in there that he did. Just sort of got to know him as like a recording guy as well as a a guy in bands. Because actually, what I didn't know is that he had been playing on sessions since he was like a kid. You know, he's like a proper musician; he can like read music and stuff. And he was from uh, Lancaster, South Carolina, which is not too far from Charlotte. Charlotte had some like really good pro studios, and he used to go up to Charlotte as a kid and play bass on these sessions and stuff. And from that, he just kind of oozed into record production and engineering and all that. So anyway, by the time I was in college and got to know him a little better, we started sort of being recording friends, you know, and he kind of really helped me with my studio in in some ways. Not directly, but like when I finally set up the studio, he he used it. You know, he brought sessions in and stuff. That's how I really got to know him. And then from there, we ended up working on things together in the studio. But by the time... um, I was I was doing the REM sessions. They weren't signed to IRS, and when they got signed to IRS, of course, they wanted them to kind of move up the food chain of recording situations, you know. And of course, they had never heard of me and my little studio, and all that was not what they thought was appropriate for a professional rock band to record in. And we had made the uh, the Chronic Town record in my garage place, and they put that out because IRS had this thing back then where they put out EPs first on people. And the band already had that finished, so it's like, okay, sure, we'll put that out. But then for the album, you know, what became Murmur, they wanted everything to be more kind of pro. And the band asked me about working on it, and I was like, yeah, sure. But the label, like I say, had no enthusiasm for me at all. They did kind of insist on on getting to have a tryout. You know, I think the label was going to hear what we did and see if they thought it was good enough. And so one of the funny things was that I had a sixteen-track tape machine. And they insisted on 24 tracks because 24 tracks was the standard of, you know, professional recordings at that time. So Reflection down in Charlotte had 24 tracks, and I had been there before, but I didn't feel confident to just go in and do a session there because I was still, you know, kind of a beginner. But Dixon had worked there all the time, you know, so I just asked him if he would help me do this session. So he did, and we recorded that song Pilgrimage that was our tryout, and it's on it's on the Murmur record. And, you know, the other part of the story that I love telling was is that IRS was not impressed with Pilgrimage, but the band somehow said, well, that's what we're going to do, and managed to do that. You know, the, those guys were awesome at being able to get their way. And they got their way, and we ended up doing the record, and I think, you know, that record turned out really well. And Don Dixon had a lot to do with that, you know, not just his experience working in Reflection, but just his genius as a music guy. So that was the first thing we really, really worked on. Kind of together, I guess. Watching.
0: In the summer of 1982, Let's Active would begin work on what would become their debut EP, Afoot. <laughs> Based on the strength of the material, as well as Easter's association
2: with R.E.M., the band would sign with IRS Records. The currency of getting your band rolling back then was to have a cassette that you could send to the club and say, here's what we do. And they would maybe play your cassette, and then they would maybe call you back. You know, So everybody made cassettes like that, which was a fair bit of the studio business for me at, in the beginning, too. I mean, a lot of these things I recorded were pressed as singles, but a lot of them were just these cassettes. And that's what the RM session was. The very first one I did was them making their cassette, you know, master. They needed something that was a good recording, but they were going to just give to clubs, you know. So that was exactly what the Foot record was. We just recorded the songs we had and actually bought a bunch of bulk cassettes in New York City and was, you know, running them off and stuff to send out to clubs. And then we managed to get signed... Somewhere in there, and 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 it was the same thing. It was like IRS just put that out, and we we got a tiny advance for that EP, so we took it and uh, spent it on on mixing the record with Scott Litt in New York, which was fun. You know, I had met Scott through the DBs, and uh, you know he was a really great engineer. So we got to work at you know a couple of cool studios in New York to mix that record. So it you know it sounds a little, well, definitely sounds better than the mixes I had done. That's what came out. But the recordings, you know, the music was all done in the garage. Really, the reason why we got signed was because um, some of the kind of field people for IRS that, you know, like uh, promotion people and reps of various types that we would see. We got to play with R.E.M. a fair bit back then. You know, they had sort of become friends and they would let us open on tours they were doing, you know, and we didn't have a deal or anything. But these IRS guys would see us and I think they liked us. And I think that helped a lot. And I think REM's people probably encouraged them to take an interest in us. You know, it was really nice. And I don't know exactly how it worked, but my official statement is that we got signed because of Sarah's hair. Um, because she had really great hair and everybody loved her, you know, and um I think these guys thought that, well, we should definitely sign that girl, you know. The rest was we're probably part of the baggage, you know. And I also think that, like, IRS had this sort of, you know, and the totally legit, of course, mercenary attitude of, like, if you hear about somebody, let's give them a little chance and see if something sticks. And I was getting some attention back then as this recording guy, you know. I don't think they really had high hopes for my band, but they thought, well, we'll get that guy and we'll just sort of see if anything happens. Um, I, I think they lost interest in us real fast, but you know, at first uh, around the EP, I think there was some enthusiasm as us being possible, you know, new waivers that would fit in with their their stable. Following the release of a foot and sensing the need to
0: begin work on the next record, Easter begins to compile the material that would become
2: Cypress. think you know they were mostly made up after the EP was done and we had played some shows for that and we knew that it was time to make an album pretty soon so just write songs and I don't know exactly you know the, the timeline on everything but the thing that I would always do was I would make demos of this stuff by myself with me playing everything because I just it just helps me figure out how the song is going to work to do that and it turned out to be this great tool in my opinion because I could just play the demo for the band and say here's how it goes you know, I didn't tell them to copy what I did exactly, but there might be some things that I thought had turned out really well, and it's like, you should do this thing right here, you know, and stuff. And they they more or less did. And it was totally fine with me if it evolved a bit with them playing it, but it came out of these demos. The thing that's kind of funny was that as much as I was interested in this whole studio guy kind of thing, I still was a real believer in bands, and I think I was a kind of a believer in the sort of punk ethos you know of everything is real you know of course we now know that nothing is ever real but there are records that are more real than others in terms of people actually playing together so i wanted the starting point to be us playing together because there is just something that happens that theoretically is good about that so everything is pretty real and the thing that's also kind of cool about that record is that i think because of the songs and just the way they sound I think a lot of people think that they're sort of complicated. You know, there's a lot of stuff on there. There's not. There's really not that much at all. I mean, the funny thing is that I had, the, like I said, the 16-track tape machine. And, you know, you'd spread the drums out on a few tracks, maybe four or five tracks or whatever, and then you've got some tracks for your other stuff. But, um, you know, you can use up 16 tracks pretty fast. Even so, some of these songs have, like, empty tracks. There's just not that much else on there besides what we did live. We had this very cavalier grab the moment if we kind of liked it kind of thing, and we didn't obsess over a mistake or something we didn't expect to do. If we liked it, it was good, right? So when I hear the record now, it seems a little crazy in that way, but I still think that's a good thing about it because it's, it's pretty real. Uh, it, w- it was funny about this record, you know, because we had played some shows with Echo and the Bunny Men and they liked us. And they were sort of maybe at their peak, and they were about to do a big U.K. tour, And they asked about us opening for them, and IRS, you know, saw that that would be a really great thing for us to do, and of course we wanted to do it. And this came up while we were working on the Cypress record, and then they got us to hurry up and finish it so they could get it out in England for when we were over there. So something about the songs that are on it, or the degree of finished it was, was really affected by that. I can't remember exactly what it was now, but we rushed to finish it at some cost to the artistry, I I think, and... uh, and I use the word artistry loosely, but you know what I mean. And we went over there and did the tour, and they never got the record out in England till months later. It was, there was absolutely no point in doing that, you know. But we were told that it was essential. So that, that's another reason why I'm a little bit vague on, on this record in some ways, because some of the songs on it, like um, Counting Down, which was really old. That, that was recorded even before the stuff on our EP, I think. Um, but it was a song we had, and so we... Mixed it and stuck it on there, you know what I mean? So the record was a little funny in that way. It was not exactly finished the way it was meant to be. But in the end, they made a record.
0: opens with Easy Does, a track which greatly emphasizes the synergistic power of Let's Active and, in a way, gives its listener the blueprint for the rest of the record, featuring a tight and energetic arrangement that unfolds in unexpected directions, the individual moving parts are singular and idiosyncratic, yet seamlessly blend into one another to create a cohesive whole.
2: have good associations with that song because uh, for some reason able to sort of make that one up in my head. I'd never done that before. I was driving to the studio and I was just thinking about something. And I sort of heard the melody and the little intro line and stuff in my head. And I got in there really quick and grabbed a guitar and then kind of worked it out. And I'd never done anything like that before. I, I usually play guitar and kind of sing at the same time. And if something is kind of catchy, I record it, you know, like in, on a cassette or now on my phone, just so I don't forget it but it it always comes out of playing guitar too and this was the first time i ever mostly did it not on the guitar and that i thought that was kind of cool i've never done it since either but when i fleshed it out and kind of made the song and did the demo i thought i really like this and and it does have that like the beginning has that da kind of thing which is like very intro-ish right you know it's kind of funny almost that it's like that um I don't think everybody loves that song. You know, it's, it, it has a high, uh, you might say, candy-ass factor, which I was happy to embrace in those years and still am, actually, you know. But I think it's the kind of song with the kind of singing it's got where we sort of sound like children, you know. Probably some of my old Winston-Salem buddies that remember me playing heavier rock music thought, yeah, he's lost his mind, Is so wussy I can't stand it, you know. But I always liked that song. And then I was pleased with the words too, because the words are real jealous. So it's this sort of happy sounding song, but the protagonist is super jealous. So that's kind of a cool contrast, I think. It's also kind of synthy, which I'm sure put off some people, but um, I like it. I like the synth. You know, I bought this Roland Juno 60 synth in '81 because I thought I should have a synthesizer. Let me see what that's all about <laughs> you know so I bought this thing um, at Manny's um, I went in there with Pat Irwin pretty significant New York area rock star dude of my generation and we both were in there sort of synth shopping you know when I bought this thing and I still have it and I still use it it was another kind of thing for me that was just opened up the sounds in a way that I found to be very enjoyable I'd, in a way, by the time we made the album, I already just felt like I can't make this quite as spare as that EP. I wanted it to be a little more filled-in sounding, you know. So the, the keyboard is pretty significant on that song. Also, you know, I'd gotten a Rickenbacker guitar around the time of the Foot record, and it had nothing to do with R.E.M. It just had to do, really, with Richard Barone of the Bongos. And also, the fact that I started remembering that, like, when I first started playing, I played a Rickenbacker at a pawn shop in Charlotte, and I thought, this thing is beautiful. I really love this. And then I didn't get it, because my bandmates were just so influential on me, and they just had no concept of what a Rickenbacker was, you know. But anyway, that guitar was cool, because it was kind of hard for me to figure out how to use it. It was... It was You had to really dig into it to get anything to come back out, which was kind of different. And Easy Does is a real good example of me kind of really wrangling that thing to the ground and getting it to do what I wanted it to, you know? (laughs)
0: Routing track Waters Park, with its dynamic instrumental interplay and triumphant chorus, is thoughtful pop music tailor-made for driving through an early morning fog.
2: stories I have all take all the majesty out of everything, I think, because the story with Waters' part was that I had gotten a new recording console for the studio, and I was really excited about it. Um, it was an AMEC Angela it came from England, and may have been the first one of those ever in the United States, I'm told. And I was very excited about that thing, and I just couldn't wait to do something on it. So I'd gotten it wired up. And it was like a Saturday morning, and it's like, okay, I've got to go record something. So I'm going to make up a song to record on the new console. And I made up Water's Bard, you know, and did a demo on it that day. And, um, you know, I thought, hey, this is a pretty good song, too. So the whole thing kind of worked. The motive really was to have something to record on this console, which makes it really sound unartistic. But that's what works for me, you know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But that ended up being one of my many, many, many political-ish songs. Another great thing about Waters Park for me was that, I guess, some years back, I met Mary at one of the most impressive musicians I've ever known, and she told me back then that that was her favorite song, which was awfully nice for her to say, and she's probably changed her mind, but that was really flattering to me, because she's so good, and she just loved that song, so I, I, uh, the fact that she liked it was important, but it's been one of our big hits, in a way, you know, it's, a, it's one we have to do, and... um and it's also been a real pain in the ass to do, because for some random reason, I did it with the guitar tuned down a whole step, just to get this heavy sound, and that's just crucial. You know, if we don't tune the guitars down, it doesn't sound right. It just sounds completely wrong. So we have to have another set of guitars to play that song that are tuned down. But it's, you know, it's worth it. It's a real good sort of warhorse on stage. It always kind of comes across. But yeah, the, the origin story is not real glamorous.
0: The melodically intricate lowdown contains subtle touches of piano and synth, which helped to color the track's already expansive landscape of jangly guitars and rolling drums.
2: A lot of that was me having fun with thinking about Echo and the Bunnymen because we had toured with them, you know, some at that point. This was before we did the longer tour with them, but we played several shows uh, in North America with them, and I really loved the way they put stuff together. And it was so—it was kind of a—I I don't think the song sounds like Echo and the Bunnymen at all, but the like the rolling drum part and the bass line on the chorus and certain things about the guitar were just me thinking about them because I just love the way they put some of their stuff together I was really fascinated with the stuff that seemed like it shouldn't work and they had a lot of that <laughs> you know they had well, there's that one song of theirs I wish I could think of the title of it but it's a it's not one of the more famous psycho the running men songs but they always played it live and it had this bass part that seemed to have nothing to do with anything anybody else was doing you know and it was so great. I just thought, okay, that is way more interesting than what you normally try to do. And so I was trying to recreate some of that type thing. My, again, I don't think the result sounds like them at all, vibes-wise, but structurally, it was a little bit of an exercise in using some of those kind of approaches. And I, and I liked the way it turned out. I um, had totally forgotten that about all that until I played that record this afternoon and heard that. I, I had to kind of laugh because I, I could sort of remember what it was I was thinking about. Like, the bass line on the chorus, it works, but it's not exactly following what the chords are, you know, and that, that was me trying to see if I could do something sort of like that. you know, we, we did mix this record at Reflection Studio in Charlotte, and they had a great piano down there, and I've, I've always loved the song Crosstown Traffic by Jimmy Andrews, and it's got this growling, very low-pitched piano in, the, in that song, and and it just sounds great, and what it is is just really low notes and really kind of extreme EQ and a whole lot of compression, and it's just this great sound, so um, anytime I could get around to real piano, I, I had to that sound on something, you know, so, and I still do. So we probably did that sound down at Reflection, even though the rest of it was recorded here. Like that record was, like I say, recorded in the garage, but when we were about to mix, the place where my parents' house was seemed to be a magnet for lightning strikes. Really must have had something to do with the geology right there, you know, and so this lightning bolt hit a phone pole out behind the house and just like splintered it, and it was just like this, amazing hand of satan thing we saw the next day these like 10 foot long splinters had gotten blasted out of the, the foam pole and driven into the ground it was just like evil looking you know and the the strike was so close to the house that it blew up a lot of equipment and the studio was out of commission so we had to go down to reflection to to mix and that was not a bad thing that was a great studio but it wasn't our plan Following
0: lowdown is the brief instrumental gravel truck, which acts as the perfect segue into Crows on a Phone Line.
2: Yeah, I love stuff like that, and it's funny because I've met people over the years who don't like stuff like that and find it to be these like annoying obstacles between the next song, you know. And it's like, well, whatever. But that was just sort of found art, you know. I was just messing around with the keyboard, just trying to get a sound, and I guess I had it hooked up through some kind of big long delay or something, and the sound kind of rolled on top of itself. Thought it was kind of beautiful, you know. So I recorded some. I guess I just kept thinking, yeah, that actually is good. I wouldn't mind hearing that. Again, you know, sometimes you want kind of an intermission between songs to change the vibe or whatever to set the next song up. And then I just thought that um, you know, gravel truck was a good title because the song does not evoke anything about a gravel truck. But I think around that time, I felt like that every time I got in my car, I was behind one of those gravel trucks with those not responsible for windshield signs, you know. And uh, so (laughs) uh, I guess I was just honoring the uh, fact of life of gravel trucks.
0: The psychedelic folk of Crows on a Phone Line is an expertly arranged number in which sustained guitar notes and Ron Weber's expressive drumming effortlessly weave around the foundation built upon an acoustic 12-string guitar.
2: I remember a whole lot about making that song up, but um, it's sort of really based on this acoustic 12 string and then, like, got a little bit of electric guitar. It it is kind of cool. You know, when I heard it today, especially the ending of it, it reminded me of that band Family, this early 70s English band that I I really loved. And I don't know if I was thinking of them at all, but, you know, my love for, for their sonorities. Maybe in that song a little bit because they kind of had, a, you know, there's a touch of that sort of English folk thing, you know, that kind of turned into a certain kind of rock music. It, it sort of has that, but I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, I just, it's just, it's just a song that was of that era, but that's, it was fun to put it together. You know, it was made up like on an acoustic guitar, but then it was sort of turned into a quasi rock song with overdubs and stuff, you know.
0: track ring true with its catchy chorus and ethereal sonic textures is the first of two songs on cypress in which easter and hunter share songwriting
2: credit Uh, yeah i kind of remember being like on the porch you know we lived on this street called shady boulevard which is kind of this great name right and i remember being on the porch and kind of working on that song with her like i think that she contributed to the chorus you know the that's what i remember anyway um you know, I guess I mostly had the song, but I was kind of making it up with like her being there, and she was maybe singing some melodies or whatever. Anyway, it definitely influenced the way it went, and and we might have written the words together. I don't remember um, about that, but we didn't do it very much. You know, I, mean, I mostly just wrote them, but um, she did. She was there at the sort of genesis of that one, and definitely contributed. And like I say, I have a vague memory of it having to do with the melody and the chorus, but. Beyond that, I don't remember. <laughs> I think the compositional thing about that one that I thought was kind of cool was, you know, it's got this guitar strum rhythm that sort of defines the chorus, that ba da 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 dun kind of feel, and the drums are playing kind of fast up, and then the bass line is sort of its own thing, it's like its own melody that that is a totally different rhythm, and I, I think I was proud of that. I thought that was a good thing about that one. Fade Back In was probably sort of ill-advised, but um, we we did it, you know. I mean, that's the thing. We were just kind of fabulously cavalier about everything back then. We just thought, ha, 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 we like that, you know, it goes on the record, you know. I mean, the lack of second-guessing what somebody might think was probably great, you know. But I I might have thought twice about the Fade Back In because the Fade Back In had a few kind of hidden jokes, you know, because it comes back in. And one of the things that you hear me saying in this kind of kind of voice is rock and roll. And uh, and then the guitar plays this kind of rock riff. And we were, of course, very much, you know, making fun of all that kind of stuff at that time. You know, the sort of like boogie vibe, you know. Um, But, you know, people of our age had heard a lot of the utterance of rock and roll in the middle of a song. You know, I always thought that was like sort of embarrassing, you know, that you would just say, you know. You would say that, and so so us having a joke about that reflects our sort of uptight, prissy stance that we had in those years. You know, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> but we try to disguise it with a lot of echo and stuff, so you can't quite like, tell what it is.
1: What the track Blue
0: Line is the band's fairly fateful rendition of UK group The Outskirt's 1981 single.
2: So Blue Line is a cover and, you know, therefore was the one that the record company was excited about because no matter what, the cover will always be the one that the authorities gravitate to. Even if it's not a cover, they know. That's just the iron law of songwriting, you know. Somebody else's song is always going to be the one they really like. And it is a very catchy song. The only way I knew about that was just by chance. I went to England with the DBs in 81 to do the front of house mix for their little tour they did and uh, they were signed to Albion Records and Albion's office was sort of the place that the band went a lot when we were in London and that was a single that they had put out by this band called The Outskirts and uh, Maggie Beck was the songwriter and they allowed us to just take records that they had you know because the record company offices back then were just full of boxes of records it was one of these seven inches with the cool picture sleeve and i took it home and so i didn't hear it i guess till i got home but i thought wow this song's great and we just started playing it we did other covers of our friends stuff like we used to actually do a few songs by that guy richard barone i mentioned and you know old songs he had written when he was a teenager in tampa we we just did them Anyway, sort of in the same spirit as that, we just started playing Blue Line, and it became sort of a staple for us, and the people at IRS loved it when they heard it, and they said, you've got to put that on the record, so we did, and our version is a little different from theirs, but, you know, not that different, it's just got a different sort of sound and a little different sort of production quality to it, but the original is a little more punky, you know, and a little more stripped down, but the same song. Maggie Beck was a really good songwriter, and we met her later on because somebody had told her that, hey, this band did your song, and she came to a show in England and gave us a cassette of some other stuff she had written that was cool. I don't know what became of that or or even became of her, but her boyfriend, I think back then, was the singer in 999. I think his name was Nick Cash. They were a really great English band. They were kind of a punky pop band but they made several records that i think are very likable they have a little bit of a connection to that pub rock kind of thing you know but they were in the punk era and anyway they made good records and supposedly she had sort of secretly written or co-written some of their songs but wasn't credited and i don't know if that's true but i really liked them so i suspect maybe she did do that or unless they just were also great songwriters which they might have been but that's all i can tell you about blue line but it was yeah faye sang that and it was um you know, it was a fun song to play live. It was, um, that was recorded, I think, back to back with us recording Water's Part. I mean, that's the thing. We made this record in this real punk rock kind of way. I, I feel like we recorded Water's Part and then, you know, like in the morning, you know, like at 11 or something, you know, or 10. And then as soon as we got that basic track done, we did Blue Line, I think, in the space of, you know, an hour or something, the two songs, and then the great thing was that Don Dixon was helping us do this, just operating the tape machine so we could play, you know and so we finished the Blue Line track, and then we went on to do something else, and somehow uh, Don erased Blue Line, so it was like, okay, well, let's do it again so the version that came out is the the redo, but I I think it was fine you know, that's just one of those beautiful stories of, oops you know, that, that can happen
0: synth-based undercarriage and blues-like riff, the track Flags for Everything is Let's Active's uniquely warped version of Southern Rock.
2: That one, you know, um, it's, it's normal guitar tuning, except the high E string is tuned down to D. And as soon as you do that, this whole universe of stuff opens up. And it makes you want to play those kind of things. They just come out of the guitar. It's not quite the Chicago blues vibe. It's a more primitive, but definitely bluesy kind of feel that happens with that. But there's some cool chord shapes that can happen when you do that. And so the whole song was kind of, you know, a, a product of, of doing that. And I know it's also another one that has a bit of the bunny influence because it doesn't have a a bass on it, it just has that low synth, which is something they they had a lot of and I really thought it was cool. So we did that song that way. So live when we did that with the three piece, um Faye actually played that on the on the synth. But yeah, that, that tuning, the whole middle section has a bit of this vaguely exotic sound, the long kind of instrumental bit before the guitar solo. And it all comes out of that tuning, you know. Um, there's a funny thing about that solo. A, a, a lot of these demos that I did, I did on a four-track tape machine, you know. I had demoed this song too, and with a different guitar. But the Rickenbacker that I used on on the stuff was Rickenbacker 330, which is a two pickup guitar. But they made a model that looks the same but has three pickups. It's called a 340. And the 340 doesn't sound the same because of the three pickups. And I had done the demo with the 340. So, you know, there's the sort of single-note kind of lyrical part of the solo. And then at the end, it's got this kind of brash part that's shorter, the very tail end. If you notice, the sound changes there. That's because I just really like that part's sound on the demo. So we actually flew it off the demo into the master tape of the new one which with tape machines takes a stupid amount of trial and error to get them to line up but we just kept doing it until it did so that's a little audio tidbit that um the world doesn't know about until now which is that (laughs) in the very last you know 10 seconds of the solo are from the demo from you know a year before uh, because it just had the right tone but that's another kind of old one i think that song um. would have been one of the was probably written before we started making the Cypress record it was probably after we had I mean I might have even made it up before we played with Echo and the Bunnymen but by the time we recorded it I decided to do that bass thing kind of copying them um, I can't remember now but I feel like that song is a, is a bit older all the ones kind of at the end of the record are like older songs
1: If the sky
0: ominous and lyrically prophetic track, Pray, is yet another song from the record that highlights Easter's skills as an arranger, and Ron Weber's skills as the perfect executor of those arrangements.
2: To me, the beat is super important, and I just didn't want any old drum part, you know, so I really was kind of specific about it. Get the vibe off those demos, and then go with it. So that's what you hear. I mean, the fact that she was willing to do that was crucial for me, because I'd The truth, it just had it at that point. And being in bands where it's kind of like you'd have somebody in the band that you know refused to kind of cooperate, you might say, it's like you would suggest something and they would go, Well, that's not how I play. And it's like, You know, that's that's not what you say in the orchestra, you know, you play what's on the sheet music. And really, partly because we started this band when I was so old, I thought, I have not got a minute to waste here, you know, I want these songs kind of like this. Because what I had seen in the local rock scene. Back then, it's not really true now, as much. But drummers, in particular, would just kind of—they just play drums. You know, they—they they didn't even seem to quite know the song all the time. You know, they were just kind of blasted through it. And I wanted stuff to be kind of more structured. And at the same time, I think our records are kind of sloppy. You know, but they—but they're the right kind of slop, in my opinion. They're not stiff and they're not boring because there's a there's a kind of moment to moment reality happening from the actual human being allowed to be somewhat creative, but there is a part, there's a structure, and there's a beat that recurs, so you get the idea of it. And I just really wanted that. That's an odd song, I I can't really remember where it came from exactly. It's sort of about today's conspiracy idiots, you know, but obviously I was writing this 40 years before that, because the pray for funny coincidence line is like you're a sitting duck for garbage information that's kind of what it's about and like collecting evidence is sort of my 80s version of do the research you know I mean it was it's kind of a like like I say all these songs are a lot of them are really kind of political you know and I was just I don't know what I was thinking of specifically but I was it is about like superstition well being easy prey for information that is unworthy of being believed in but once you're once you're on the disinformation train, you know you just can't get enough of it, right? One little other thing about that song, I had gotten this octave guitar around that time, which is um, a guitar that's just half as long as a normal guitar. You know, so the pitch is up an octave, so it's like a guitar that starts at the twelfth fret. Funny looking little thing. It was made by this company called Robin, who were in Houston, and um, I would put it on to play that song, and somebody in the audience would always laugh. You know. You know, it, it just it just amuse people. And that's what the main thing you hear on that. So I mean there's an acoustic rhythm guitar, but the little sort of melody kind of thing, high pitch guitar back in there is that octave guitar, which is a really great little instrument. It's it's sort of like the the high strings off a twelve string, you might say, you know. But it just lifts everything up. I've used it on a lot of things I've produced for other people just to add to the chorus to make it kind of lift. The only other big uh, record I can think of where I was pretty sure I heard one of these was a Eurythmics song. I don't know which one it was. Um, but they, they didn't really, you know, take the world by storm or anything, but it's a cool instrument.
1: facsimile
0: we near the end of the record we get the lively power pop of co-stars which is probably my favorite song on cypress
2: to me it just feels like the beginning of this record's victory lap i remember i was just making up in the sort of you know canon of songs that we needed to have a band so it's it's from the very first batch of songs that we had and i remember playing it down at sarah's little shed in her house and we kind of stopped practicing down there early on so i know it was quite an old song And I always kind of like to do it, and it just sort of fell by the wayside, and I don't really know why. And then I I think I just thought about it at some point, and we recorded it. And this version that's on Cypress, I think, was recorded for Cypress, but I think it was also possibly one of our, like, oh, hell, they're telling us to finish the record in a week, so let's do this, because we already got it. What I do remember is that the way the guitar solo starts, this riff, was actually the guitar part throughout the song and did it over and over and over in the verses and by the time we re recorded it I thought, That's too much of that riff. <laughs> How about if it doesn't have any guitar at all except dan dan, dan dan which was a breakthrough of arranging that made that song better really. I think that's a Vox organ. The, the other keyboard instrument I had back then was a '60s Vox Jaguar combo organ, which I still have. Got it when I was in college at this store in, in Durham, and this poor thing had, had been through the mill even back then. It, um, you know, the they were very cool looking. You know, they had these chrome legs that were really stylish, really, you know, super cool looking. And then the top part was orange. But, of course, the orange part of this one had been spray-painted black by somebody that thought that was dumb-looking, you know, probably in, you know, 1975 or something. And the really funny thing was that the... You know how a lot of organs have these rocker switches for the tones? You know, they're kind of big, square. They tilt back and forth. So the the Jaguar had about five of those in a little bank. And I don't know what, what had happened to them, but they had all been replaced with these switches that you could get at auto parts stores, these big chrome switches that people would put in their, like, you know, modified transams and stuff, you know, back then. That's definitely what these switches are, and I don't know if the person did it for the, you know, super badass aesthetics to go along with their black paint job or what. But anyway, they're still in it, but I still have the organ, and I still use it, and um, that is that is what's on star. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's just kind of a, a poppy kind of song, but it's, I think I, at that time, I was probably trying to get sort of a vaguely Buzzcocks kind of, energy or something, you know, speed, you know, that kind of thing.
1: If there's nothing in their faces, it's from taking on the centuries.
0: The album's penultimate track, Ornamental, is headphone pop at its finest, containing a glorious mixture of background vocals, raga guitar bursts, and embellishments of tubular bell-like sounds.
2: That is actually one of those Yamaha Digital synthesizers that everybody hated back then, but it did those good bell sounds, you know? I mean, unfortunately, it's probably the same sound that's on the Taco Bell commercials, but, um, that's okay. But that's what that is, uh... There was the famous Yamaha DX7, and they made this other one that was a little cheaper, the DX9, that this guy that we knew had, and for some reason he parked it over at the studio for a while, so it, it wound up on the record a little bit. That's what that Bell sound is. You know, it was just something to punctuate that riff a little bit. I love those raga solos. They're kind of easy to do, and they just sound great. I mean, like Taxman being one of the great ones, you know, from way back, and um, they're just fun. But yeah, I like that solo, and it's it's an off the cuff solo, but I like it. It's like when we play the song now, I feel like I need to kind of play that because it sounds right. Um, but it wasn't really worked out. It also has this good kind of clangy sound to it um, because it was a it was a Fender Telecaster that wasn't mine. I I borrowed it from somebody, but it really had this kind of ear piercing glassy top end which I hope the recording tamed a little bit but it was a kind of a cool sound and that song really kind of worked into that that sound I remember making up the song when my little garage setup in in my parents house got sort of rebuilt at one point and so I think everything was disconnected and um but I wanted to make up a song so I did a demo of it which has instead of drums it has like me tapping on cardboard boxes and stuff like that so I have this super crude demo of that song but i remember liking it and it's one that we've kind of kept playing it's this kind of roadworthy kind of song you know it has kind of funny words but what it was about was um i was thinking about these sort of non-Western cultures, and also, like, dictatorships in in the East and what they're like. So I was thinking there's all this symbolism, everything is symbolism, and it works. Like, everybody just buys into the symbol, and they do what they're supposed to do. But it kind of creeps me out, you know? (laughs) So, and I forget exactly what Ornamental Pity was about, but it was sort of about this, again, sort of, like, formalized pity, you know, like this sort of... um, a society that internalizes some sort of sense of being wronged in some way. And then it becomes this like motive for everything. And it's kind of fucked up. Like, you know how when Yugoslavia broke up, they just resumed the feuds that they had going on in like 1300 AD. You know, you can't believe that this family remembers how they were wronged by this tribe in medieval times, you know. And it seemed like back then that kind of stuff was more at work in places other than the United States we now see that all humans just like to act like that and we're getting, we're getting our own dose of it you know American style woohoo but anyway that's kind of what it was about it was sort of about these like fixed ideas and people operating on fixed ideas that are just sort of fabrications but they have this power so somehow or other that's what that song was supposed to be about <laughs> um, if that makes any sense at all
0: The album's final track, Counting Down, is a somewhat simple yet solid piece of songcraft that exudes a sense of warmth and nostalgia and acts as an effective conclusion to Cyprus.
2: does have this funny sort of covered sound about it, which was kind of right, I think. Like, I remember making that one up kind of in, like, December and when it's finally sort of is gray most of the time. But that's recording weather, you know? I I love being in the studio with that kind of weather. So I I just think of that song as having that feel, and it sort of sonically has that feel, too, which is interesting, you know? Yeah, it's a really old song. It was one, you know, like, to make it up, like the guitar part and everything, was an attempt at playing in that way where like you don't play any normal chords you know you just play other stuff or you just put your fingers down and see what something sounds like and it's simple you know it's got a sort of real basic kind of core to it but then we had to kind of I had to kind of trip it out some with a lot of backwards piano because um you know those big Yamaha electric pianos that were sort of like real pianos but they were also electric somebody's CP 70 was in the studio and I think maybe it must have been right around Christmas maybe they had like stopped for the holidays and they were going to come back and finish their record maybe and this thing was just in there so it's like alright I'm going to use this because I didn't have any kind of piano at all and um, they don't quite sound like real pianos I thought that it had this kind of softer attack and everything and it just made me think about the, the wonderfulness of backwards piano so the song is completely you know, drowning in backwards piano but it is kind of the vibe I wanted I was making a comment to a guy the other night we were talking about the sequencing of his record and the last song on his record is not a grand epic it's sort of a moderate kind of song but it's again it's got a similar sort of contemplative aspect to it and somebody had told him like they liked that song and it was buried at the end of the record and I was saying no that last song on the record is very important you know and I like the structure and this song feels like you know you've gotten to the last page of the book and you close the book you know or something you know or the church service has ended and you go out there's a right kind of ending song that's important if you call the last song on record buried then you're assuming that the entire record is a sort of slow decline from the first song you know <laughs> and by the end you're not paying attention anymore it's like no i don't want to think about it that way i want to think of it as a whole with a proper ending you know so um i like that feel at the end of a record there's certainly a case to be made for you know ending with you know your rock band version of Handel's messiah but uh, that that's fine too but yes i think for like the thing about let's active is we were kind of like a little band and we sort of needed to make records scaled to what we did we had not reached the power ballad part of our career at that point so it wouldn't it just wouldn't have felt right at all to try to go out with something big we we just didn't really get that big in general you know at that point the songs aren't those kind of songs really they might have a ta-da here we are thing like maybe easy does has but it's still you know a different kind of scale for the album art, the band uses
0: an oil painting of a volcano that Easter painted, as is stated in the liner notes, some two decades ago, which at this point would now be
2: nearly some six decades ago. For some reason in that time I was really amused by that relentless use of some in that way. Like, it was some two centuries before Napoleon that the blah, you know, the, the, the some thing struck me as this sort of trope that I was slightly tired of so I wanted to make fun of it but it was approximately 20 years old at that point because I was probably like 27 and I'd probably done this when I was seven and my mom painted she had a style back then of using oil paints and painting with a knife and I thought that was so cool I loved how it was kind of 3D so this picture which is supposed to be a volcano, even though it's just sort of a blob, was painted with the knife, and I had a lot of fun doing it. And then I just found it, you know, I found the canvas. It's real small, you know, it's like maybe 9 inches by, you know, 12 inches or not even. So anyway, that was the cover, and I just liked the picture. IRS Records released Cypress in the
0: late summer of 1984. Though it would be well-received by critics, the album would fail to perform at the level of which IRS had hoped.
2: I think we got pretty good reviews, as I recall. I mean, it was funny about IRS Records because they, you know, like all these companies, they really just, they have to make money to exist. But they really sold themselves to the public as these, like, super good guys of the music industry, you know. But in fact, the stuff they would say to the bands was kind of the same thing that any label would say to the bands, you know. It's like, we need a hit, you know, kind of thing. I mean, they were very disappointed in the sales of Murmur, you know, by R.E.M., and I thought... Seriously, you know, because like right away it sold like about 200,000, I think, which seemed like a lot of records to me, you know, because I wasn't comparing them to Fleetwood Mac, I was comparing them to punk bands. I thought that was a lot of records, you know, and that record, of course, over time sold really a lot of records. But the point is, they were looking for hits and stuff just like anybody else, and our band was never destined to be like even R.E.M., because R.E.M. became a mainstream band, but they were seen as kind of weird at first, too, which is why it took a while for them to, you know... Not weird, but you know what I mean. It just it took a band like that longer to develop because it was kind of a new music world coming up, and they were part of it. And they totally conquered it. But we didn't have the kind of, you know, star power that they had, and I, and I knew it. I'd hoped that we could have our little more humble place in the scene, but that kind of really was not to be. And I don't know how much Cypress sold, but it probably didn't sell a whole lot. It probably sold, like, 40,000 or something, which, again, is, like, great these days, but back then that was seen as, like, super failure because, you know, there were these things like Thriller and stuff that were selling a billion, you know, so it was kind of screwy. There was an acceptance of the sort of new wave scene, but uh, not total acceptance if, if it didn't make money.
0: Further complications would arrive during the album's aftermath when prior to the record's release... Sarah Romweber announces that she would be leaving the band.
2: The aftermath was horrible. You know, we finished this record that I thought was kind of a cool record, and we were getting ready to go to England to do this Echo and the Bunnymen tour, you know. So we had worked, you know, in the summer to make the record, and then we were done, and now we're rehearsing a little bit to go to the thing. And then she announces that she's leaving the band, and, and that her mother had told her that she had to tell us. She wanted to do the tour, but her mother said, you have to tell them that, you're going to do this because they might not want to take you to England. So her mother gave her this ethical, you know, demand that which she lived up to and told us. And I was just absolutely devastated because I felt like, no, we just got started, (laughs) you know, and we did just get started, you know, and we were doing well and she was a big part of it. And um, I just am aware of the fact that you don't get a lot of chances. People don't really like it when bands have different members in them, you know, I mean, there are bands like the cure that have had a lot of people over the years, you know, but, in general, people like it to be the same people, you know. And and I do, you know. It's just the way we think. Plus, she was so distinctive. We had worked really hard to put that, you know, to hammer that thing into something, and we were doing well. But, you know, she was still a teenager, and she probably imagined that her life was just beginning, and she didn't want to get stuck with this thing, you know. And So I kind of understood it, but I was just really hurt, you know. And we did the tour with Echo and the Bunny Man, and it was fun, but it sucked because it was, it was just... It was just super depressing, you know. It was sort of like, sort of like booking a world tour with your spouse who announces that they're going to divorce you, you know. But you you paid so much for the tickets, you have to go on the world tour, and you have to endure that for a long time. And then when you get home, you know what's going to happen. It's like Ugh, this just feels terrible, you know. Um, so that was the aftermath of the record. It was kind of crappy. And then um, when we got back from that tour, though, we had to do an American tour, so we had to put the band back together. Real fast, and so that's when we went out with um, Jay Peck playing drums and Tim Lee as our sort of extra person because we had we had had the extra person thing a lot um, in an informal kind of way because the songs do have the little keyboard bits or the acoustic guitar bit or whatever you know so it was nice to have that um, so that's what we did and that was a good band and you know it was and it was well received and the weird thing about it was that the audience didn't seem to care or notice or something it was like it's interesting how that all changes it's like once people get familiar with the music, I think, from hearing it somewhere else, you know, as opposed to seeing them in a club, they just, they just want to hear the song, they don't have as much thing in their head of who played on the song, and Sarah was not really asked about very much, which just kind of blew my mind, you know, but, um, and that was it, I sort of never saw her again, I would see her very occasionally, but not much, you know, and um, so I, I really didn't talk to her again until we did the the, the the show here 29 years after this, and um, and it was fine. But that was the aftermath. It was kind of weird.
0: Following Ron Weber's departure, Faye Hunter would perform on one more record with the band, 1986's Big Plans for Everybody, before making her exit. Easter would release a final full-length under the Let's Active name, 1988's excellent Every Dog Has Its Day, before officially disbanding the project in 1990. In the ensuing years, the members of Let's Active would work on a number of separate projects. Sadly, after experiencing a number of personal struggles for some time, Faye Hunter would pass away in July of 2013. In a piece that he wrote following her death, the DB's Peter Holsapple said of Hunter that she was known as a sweet, droll, and artistic friend who unintentionally served as something of a den mother and big sister to many of the younger musicians in town, and that it is hard to imagine a world without Faye Hunter. In 2014, Easter and Ron Weber would briefly reunite to play the Be Loud Cancer Benefit in Carborough, North Carolina. The concert would unfortunately mark the last time that the two musicians would play together, as Ron Weber would pass away from a brain tumor in 2019. As the sole remaining member of Let's Active's original lineup, Easter continues to carry on the legacy of the band and celebrated the 40th anniversary of their 1981 debut with a concert event held last November in Winston-Salem. And as for his overall feelings on the record that he made with his bandmates some nearly four decades ago, Easter remains mostly proud of what they were able to accomplish together.
2: When, when something I've done becomes about five years old, I can start to listen to it like just it's some record that somebody has. And that's great because, you know, if you made it yourself, you just hear everything that you don't like about it or you're worried about, it, and then you forget all that. So that's been a long time ago now. And I basically like it. I think when I hear it now is I think it's kind of weird, you know, it's kind of a weird record, you know, and um, it's got a distinctive sound. And I'm kind of proud of all that. But, um, it, you know, it strikes me as there's a plenty of like slop in there that i would have not let get past me now but at the time i must have thought no that's fine that's cool that's what we did (laughs) you know i don't think i have quite that attitude quite as much anymore i I still love the idea of capturing the moment but i hear some singing where i think god dude you should have resung that line you know but now it's just like history so i don't care you know and if people have enjoyed the record which apparently they have then it must evoke the right thing, you know, and that's a lot more important than any technical considerations or you were flat on that note or anything, because, you know, those things, they, they add up and they matter, but they also don't matter, you know. It's um, it's more of a big-picture thing with, with records, you know. So overall, I like it because I think it's kind of distinctive, you know. I can't really think of a record that's like that record, that has that vibe, and that's pretty good.
0: Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Mitch Easter for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream some of the songs from Cypress and more from Let's Active on the various streaming platforms, as well as buy it from the usual online retailers. Or you could do it the way God intended and check out your local independent record store. See if you can find a copy that way. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.